Hello? 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 Rethink. Rethink. Reimagine. Reimagine. Okay. Okay, America. Okay, America. Welcome back to our show where we rethink and reimagine all possibilities. On today's show, we have the privilege of hearing yet another often unheard voice in America, and that is the voice of a former police officer, retired police officer. Today we have a representative, a retired representative. Of course, all police officers are different, just like all human beings are different and unique. And sometimes what people fear, they tend to judge. And so it's an honor for me to introduce this guest. But before I do, I'd like to introduce my other co-host. Well, actually, they're not my (laughs) co-host. We're all hosting together. And so we have the lovely Dr. Phil, who is the founder of Life Strategies, a coaching firm for highly motivated performers. And we have the Juliette Lamar, TV personality, producer and journalist striving to make the world a better place. And last but not least, we have Sam in the background who keeps it all balanced with his sane perspective. So today's guest is Dr. Craig Hedgley, who is uh, a security manager at FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. He's also a former adjunct instructor at Bryan and Stratton. He worked at Milwaukee Public, or excuse me, Milwaukee Police Department. He's a retired Milwaukee Police Department officer. He studied at, uh, got his master's in human services at Springfield College, studied at Capella University. He studied at Mount Scenario College, studied criminal justice at Mount Scenario College as well. Went to uh, Harlan High School in Chicago, lives in Houston, Texas, and is from Chicago, Illinois. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you this lovely man who is also my father. And Woo-hoo! I <laughs> very much so privileged to have you on the show today, Dr. Craig. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you forgot, and I'm gonna make. I'm saying this not to be. Uh, oh, the Marine. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah, I was a Marine. I was in two branches of service. I was in the Army for three years, and I was in the Marine Corps for ten years of active duty and seventeen in reserve years. Wow. So, but the one what I had in mind was. I was also a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, and I was in the Civil Air Patrol. <laughs> kid, so. Do I, not forget. <laughs> well, I bring that up as an important uh, point is that uh, since I was, to bring up that since I was probably five or six years old, I knew what I was going to do in life. And I knew I was going to be a soldier, and I knew or and or a police officer. And I, that's why I bring that up. Um, many of the people I work with on the police department and in the Marine Corps specifically were people who thought the same way, who were young people, kids, and whatever inspired them through at their early life, that's what they uh, uh, expired to as they became adults. Right. So I know many people like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's really good that you you bring us right into the conversation, which we're talking about 
police officers and do Blue Lives Matter? And you started off right away by talking about what led you to, you know, the career path of being a police officer, which I think is very important because sometimes people assume that they know what makes people become police officers. And sometimes they assume that it's because you want to be aggressive and you want to be in control and you want to do this, that and the other thing. But as you're saying, your dreams of becoming a police officer happened for you at a very young age. That is correct. Um, many people in my in my family were police officers or and or soldiers. I have one uncle that was actually a D-Day, and my father was in Okinawa during World War II, and so on. So that was my um. I would say my foundation for what I thought when I was going to grow up. And that's the only way I thought. So, and in the police department, usually you don't find anybody that says, I just wanted to go get a job, so I guess I'll go down to the to the police department and apply. Right. It's, it's rarely like that. There's a few people like that, but they usually don't last long because it's not what they wanted. They wanted a... a a paycheck, and it's not that. And I tell people, I'm not a bus driver or janitor. <laughs> we we have uh, all these in their feeling that you, you become a police officer. You don't join, you become one. It's right. just like being a nun or a priest. You are one. And it, ne it never leaves you. So, mm. a, so, Dr. Hedgley, for those of us who are uneducated about this. This is such a hot topic right now. And, you know, I'm probably closer to your age and, you know, you and I are probably from a similar generation. Like because 35? Just, <laughs> I, I, I've been 35 for 35 years. But, um, <laughs> but sir, you're also talking about growing up patriotic. And so, you know, when, when you watch the news today or you're, you're watching with other people, I hear this a lot in my own personal life. Why would anybody want to be, choose to be a police officer today? They're attacked. They're blamed for everything. You know, they're under siege. It, it, there was, when I grew up, a police officer was somebody you respected and revered and, and the media would never portray them the way they're being portrayed. Uh, if you were young today, because you grew up patriotic and being a patriot, there was not a question to serve your country. Today, do you, do you see that the world is different than that? And would you, would you approach it differently if you were starting out today? I don't think so. Uh, I would tell you when I was probably about 15 years old, I, I went up to a police officer, and it's happened to be a black police officer, and, and I said, I'm going to be a cop someday. And he, looks at, he looked at me, and he says, you're, you're one foot closer to jail than, than the criminals are. And so this was in the, <laughs> the mid-60s. So, so, and I was perplexed at that, of course, but it didn't deter me. And, and... And I just always thought of that guy. That I wonder what he was up to, or did he retire, or whatever. But then recently, more recently, I read 
uh, about the gunfight at OK Corral with Wyatt Earp and whatnot and Doc Holliday. Right. And the, the Clanton gang, part of the Clanton gang after the shootout, that, which only lasted 30 seconds, uh, a couple of days later went into the town to, f- to file a complaint against Wyatt Earp that he shot first. So it's this long, wow. uh, and and the newspapers picked up on that at the time, and they did the same thing. They uh, they um, chastised Wyatt Earp. He had to go through a, a hearing and uh, a court review and all these kind of things, the transcripts of that, and they called a judge in and everything. And so I said, he went through the same thing. He saved his town from the clan gangs who was stealing and robbing horses and cattle and all these sort of things. And he was chastised. He he was finally exonerated, but he left. Right. Yeah, but he left that town. And I, so it's it's always been that. And there's but, always a, there's always a level of scrutiny. Yes. When you're on the front line, right? When you're willing to risk being out there, right, Dr. B? I mean, because you too have been a police officer. Yeah, I I became a police officer because of my dad and seeing him, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, I would choose to walk in this path. I feel like, you know, seeing him and seeing the way that he performed on his job, you know, with integrity and honor, you know, uh, Dr. Hedgley was also part of the a program uh, with police officers, officers that actually helped police officers who were suicidal. So he was part of the team to help suicidal police officers. And, and I don't think people really understand how stressful the job is of being a police officer. There's so many things that I wish people knew about the the position before they would judge every single officer. And what the media doesn't tell you is that there's there's police officers who are African-American and there's police officers who are of Asian descent and there's police officers of all ethnicities. And the only thing that the media focuses on are negative images of police officers and you never hear the stories of the police officers who are who are risking their lives or who are helping people with mundane things that have nothing to do with law enforcement so that well, that brings that brings us to our point though like when you sit when you hear something that says defund the police it's exactly what you're talking about dr b it's it's about you the police force being overwhelmed with calls to save your cat or calls for someone who is having a mental episode versus someone's breaking into my car, how someone's hurting me. Um, so I guess when you hear that defund the police, do you automatically go to, yeah, we're a little overworked, maybe spread that around? Or how does that make you both feel? I think defunding the police is a stupid idea. And I think it's stupid because <laughs> it's stupid because you take away, you take away the resources from a department, from people who actually need the resources. If anything, you can, you can uh, reallocate things or restructure things. However, to simply defund things, to unplug things without a strategy or without a, a plan of action doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I liken it to if you were a Starbucks employee and you go to work one day and they're like, oh, 
we don't have cups today because we've been defunded, then and you still have to make coffee, it's going to make your job pretty difficult. So when you defund things, you have to be mindful of the programs that might be defunded along with it. So, Dad, what do you think about that? Or excuse me, Dr. Hedgley, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get professional. And, and, yeah. and Sam's joining our conversation, which I think is awesome to have another, another uh, generation on. Yeah, no, so I actually have some questions for the two of you, Dr. B and Craig. So you guys know what being a cop is like probably more than most people do. And especially where I just moved into, I moved into this place called Bellingham, um, pretty much as left-wing as it gets. And Bellingham is very left-wing. I know people that have the, the initials ACAB tattooed onto them, which, I mean, I'm sure you guys know what that means. It means all cops are bad. Ah! Uh, yeah, so people hate cops right now, especially here. And yeah, I kind of want to know how that makes you feel. And I mean, obviously, it doesn't make you feel great. But yeah, well, what does um, I feel like speak people, to those people? Speak people to those people. Feelings, and they don't really have a solution either. So I'm interested to hear what you guys think would be a good middle ground to kind of meet those kinds of people halfway at least. I tell them to call the security guard if they need the police. <laughs> <laughs> don't call me <laughs> good luck on that right yeah well yeah it, it's frustrating i don't i don't hate them or anything yeah. like that it's frustrating and i would help any of them just which i had help people who fought me to help them so so that's the honor of the job you stick yeah. with that and so, so there's, a, there's a new model, Dr. Hedgley, that uh, Newark, New Jersey tried. And so it, it's, it isn't defunding, it's reallocation. So they've come up with teams to help the police officers so that they don't have to be all things, right? There's a family therapist, um, there's a, a, um, a, a homeopathic doctor, there's a paramedic, there are all, there's a team and then what gets sent out is per the topic, right? One of the things that is, I would think would be impossible and you two have experienced it and, and, and I think it goes to what Sam's trying to say, is that when it's like how kids hate their parents because their parents are all things, right? So, so you're, right. you're mad at your boyfriend, you're now mad at your parents, and you're going through puberty, you're mad at your parents, and you got an F on a test, and you're mad at your parents. And there's, there's a sense that, that what we're, you know, we're in such a blame society that, that somebody has to be blamed. And there is something about that uniform that walks around a community that doesn't look like any other uniform. And just like in a house when the father walks in or a mother walks in. And for me, I was wondering about this concept of creating, uh, in baseball, they call bullpen by committee, where nobody has all the responsibility, but it's divided up on a team of specialists. Does that make sense given the roles and responsibility of a police officer out there in the community? It, it, I, I don't know. I can't wrap my myself around that because if somebody has to uh, 
social worker or doctor or whatever has to go to that uh, person's house, it's still a dangerous um, environment. And you still need a police officer with that doctor. No and, question. But, yeah. the, but my point to you, Dr. Hedgley, is right now we expect that police officer to have the skills of the doctor. And oh, it's, yeah. not, it's not fair to them, right? They come with a team that is responsible for diffusing the situation based on the training and the specialization that they may have. It's like the country doctor versus going to a heart specialist, right? The country Correct. doctor can only do so much. A police officer, whether it's the inner city or the suburbs, they can only do so much. They, they're called out for domestic disputes. They're called out for drug-related disputes. They're called out for cats in the, you know, that's stuck in the tree kinds of things. And it would seem to me that the reallocation of funding around building these bullpens by committee makes some sense as an honoring of police officers that Blue lives not only matter, but they're essential. It, yes, that makes sense. And that, that uh, allows police officers to take more calls for service. And, and I, was, I, would, I have to look at the, uh, uh, how it's allocated before I have, a, before I have an opinion on it. I, I sure. heard about it, but I hadn't seen it. But it makes sense on that. And some calls, yes. Some calls, no. And well, arrests went down 70% in two years in Newark because of this model. Now, well, I shouldn't say because of this model. We, you know, my, my friend Dr. B says facts are important. Um, I've been told that it's because of that model, right? We're mm. not sure, but, but, you know, I think there is this sort of misunderstanding in any field that you can't do everything. And if you're expected to, you're under siege. Look at our yeah. COVID first responders right now, right? It's it's unbelievable what they're expected to do. Yes. I have a quick question. I don't know if it's quick. Why do I always say quick? It's never quick. Um, <laughs> so right now, we are, you, you touched on it earlier that we're not hearing the stories when police do good things, um, which I think is, is underrepresented. We need those stories to be in the media as well. But a recent video I saw was of a black gentleman who's in a wheelchair. He's disabled and he's being attacked by four officers. I do not know what happened before that video to incite the violence upon him, but he gets ripped out of his chair and he's beaten and arrested. Here's four officers. There's one gentleman in a wheelchair do you think that having power brings out the bad in people and that there is a specific type of person that that could affect more and they would be more susceptible to it? Because that to me, as, a, as a someone who's just watching that video, you really want to say police are not helping, even though that I know that you are and I don't want the police to go away, but it's hard to watch that and not think otherwise. Well, one of the things, the aspects of being a police officer is violence is involved. No matter how you, how much you, you uh, try to negotiate with the person, sometimes it just happens. So, and the violence that 
have to be have to be uh uh it has to be structured mm-hmm. you can't have gratuitous violence so that's where your training comes in certain aspects of your training tells you this is what you have to do for this this is and you go on and on and on it's a force continuum and the top of the force continuum is deadly force and the the left, the first part of it at the bottom is dialogue, so ethical appeal. Of, so you're saying a lot of what these people, this is the violence that these people are being taught is kind of just, I mean, I'm not sure that the exact word, but this is like kind of just textbook, like what they've been learning and this is like what they're supposed to do. Pretty yeah. So, well, the other part is a, a 12-year-old kid can kill you and an 80-year-old grandma can kill you. Mm-hmm. So you can't take you can't take for granted that because he's in a wheelchair, he's not violent. He's not going to hurt you. He doesn't have a knife under him. He doesn't have a gun under him, or that sort of thing. He, or if he spits on you, you know, then you're infected with something. So you do have to, without me looking at this video, of this you do have to take necessary steps, but you make it quick and and precise, so you can get the person cuffed. The more cops that are there, the less likely the violence is going to escalate. If there's one cop there, you're more likely to be attacked because you're vulnerable to, oh, I can take this one guy because he's only this tall. And it's, but if it's three or four cops, you're less likely to attack any of them. And if they have to grab you, each one is trained to grab a limb. Somebody sits on the, or lays on the, and you kind of lay like on the feet. Somebody right. lays at the buttock there. Somebody lays here, and then another person does the cuffing. But, but you, oh. you, were, you were talking about how these like precautions and how they're supposed to kind of like take force of the situation, like how that's supposed to be fast and precise, right? Right, right. So, you make it fast. You mean the you one- do- you do see all these videos online, though, and despite what happens like before to cause them, like there are these officers that really take like a long time to really make, or I mean, I don't know, they take an, it seems like they take an unnecessary amount of time to actually like yes control. Like they're kind of it definitely seems like an abuse of power, no matter what started it. So what is that? I mean, does that seem like a problem to you? It does, and I I think that the experience level of the particular officer or. Or if it's a group of officers, one has to decide who's going to take charge of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes about three, three to four years to actually be a well-rounded officer. And now that's experience, not training. Because the training the, is experience. not three or four years. No, that's right, the experience no. that you get. Experience. The training right. is continuous. So I'm actually just genuinely curious, like when you, it's like, let's say you're like a rookie, like you just started actually like working in the city or wherever you are. Um, what do they give you? Like, do they, like, what do they give you? Like, a, like all the weapons that they would give somebody else that has been working for like a good 10 years? Or is it just like, you kind of got to work your way up to there? No, you have, you have the same weapon. Mm. Uh, but you train, you learn that in the academy. You learn how to, how to fire the weapons, how to use the taser and all these sort of things. You graduate, and then you're with a field training officer 
for another six months. That's the FTO. And that person tells you, leads you gradually into the actual work of police work and grades you and teaches you how to write reports and and teaches teaches you how to testify in court and basically keep you alive for yeah. for that six months. If you if you graduate and then the next day they tell you okay that's your squad car get out there and go forth and <laughs> yeah. whatever you'll probably get killed soon. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so interesting you brought up, you know, because when I'm a civilian watching the video of this um, disabled man being attacked by four officers, I'm not thinking like a cop where you mentioned, does he have a knife? Does he have a gun? That doesn't cross my mind. And I think that that's really important to point out that a lot of times as a police officer, you are faced with people who are armed. So you you have to think about that. You can't. Assumptions. If you make assumptions, that could be your your ass, so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. A wheelchair could actually be a bomb. Mm-hmm. People don't see, and that's why you got to be careful when you look at things on TV because you're not even seeing the full story. You're not even right. there. But one thing mm-hmm. I do want to talk about, and I think it's very important that we bring clarity to this, is uh, the topic about violence. I want to be specific about that because Sam asked a very poignant point. Our police officers trained to be violent. That is the question. And so from my perspective, I would have to say, no, we're not trained to be violent. My dad, Craig, Dr. Hedgley is talking about the force continuum. There's various levels to the force continuum. Before you even get to that point, we're talking about officer presence. The first thing to dis- to deter crime is police officer presence, which is nonviolent, which is simply mm-hmm. being present. So police officers are not trained to be violent. And, and Dad, I'd like you to bring more clarity to that because that's that mm-hmm. is uh, that's how people are. That's how people think, and that's why they. That's an assumption that they have. What do you wait? First, before Craig talks, what do you mean by being present? Like, do you mean there? Yeah, well, you that a little bit? being there, being Just being, being there. there, being there, being being able to be seen. Somebody says, "Hey, I need some help," and you're there. Yeah, and, so, and maybe they're, maybe they're even not trained to be violent. Like the, the violence that you do see come out is not. I mean, it has nothing to do with the force. And it's, it depends on the individual themselves and like what. Well, well, we have to we we really have to talk about how it's changed, right? Because culture is training people to be violent towards police officers, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So th- think about this. Think about what what profession we're talking about a career. We're not. We're talking about a life's work. When did you ever get up thinking that you may not come home today? thinking that you may have to be violent, thinking that you have a camera on your body that will now capture, right? You know, back in the day, you know, Doc Holliday didn't have a body cam, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you know, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that the scrutiny may define an identity that is not equal to the actual experience. Yes. That the actual experience of a police officer, the intention to keep order in our community, right, 
Look at your age group, Sam, and look at you have, even in your questioning, is a premise that police officers are violent. It's more There's a premise in your voice. Right. I mean, there's, there's this assumption there. And I think what what Blues Lives Matter is all about today is that it actually fair. Can we really live without an authority trained to keep order in our communities? Whether it's military or it's police or it's community-based activism, where did we go wrong that this is even the conversation? Because we have a gentleman who's spent 50 years of his life doing this, right? Studying this and looking at this. But never in history have we had this level of scrutiny and new generations coming up where you can look on a screen every single day and see people attacking people in uniform. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. The irony of it too is that like as these generations grow up and they teach the future generations like this kind of attitude too, like it's just going to make the cops kind of have to be even more violent. Well, I... This <laughs> <laughs> has to say. What do you have to say? <laughs> exactly. He's a coward. Come on. I want to hear what Sam Ashkenazi has to say. And Dr. Hedgley, slap this kid around, will you? Make me go back to high school. <laughs> no, I never heard of taking over a police station. That That's just something that never came in, except in a sci-fi movie or something. Yeah, that was, uh, and it was crazy. That's in his community. That's in Seattle, yeah. Washington. Yes. And, and that's crazy. Uh, but part of this, what you brought up, it, it has to do with the. there's three types of people. And the, most everybody's a sheep. And then there are the wolves who prey on the sheep, and then the police, the fire, the uh, those kind of types of people are the sheepdog. And now the sheepdog is standing, is sitting on top of the hill, looking down in the valley, and they see all these sheep, and the sheep are going bah, bah. <laughs> Bump, bumping into each other. And how do I spell that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now the wolf is on the other side, on the other side of the valley there, looking down, says, which one of them sheep do I, can I get? Which one of those sheep can I prey upon? How do I get in the middle of those sheep? The sheepdog is watching this, and the sheep, and the sheep crawl, crawled down in there and said, I'm just a nice little old wolf, and... That that old sheepdog is just bothering me for no reason at all, and the sheep say, being the sheep, not knowing, take them in, and say, you little sheepdog, you, you little wolf, you'll be okay. Just stay with me. I'll take care of you. Now the now the sheepdog, that there's one of them wolves preying on the sheep. Let me run down there and get them. And then, and then what happens? The sheep hang all around this wolf and protect them. Hmm. So that's, the, that's my idea of the way life is.
Well, you know, my sheepdog sheds, and that's a different podcast uh, yeah. topic. But um, so, sir, here's the thing that I would ask about that, mm-hmm. right? There were studies back in the day, and you sent me uh, material, which I appreciate. That mm-hmm. one half of one percent of all police officers are really um, misbehave or are you know do do bad things, and and what's being portrayed now is that it's a much larger percentage, right? And again, it's sort of like, you know, an African-American man does something and it gets put on TV and now all African-American people are this way or, you know, yeah. my there's a Jewish guy who's who's wealthy, now all Jews are wealthy. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, an Asian guy who's good at math and now everybody who's Asian is good at math. Or there's a white young kid who's an idiot and all. No, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. I didn't. Mean, I didn't. I did not mean that. Um, you know, just playing. Um, so my, my my point of that is is that has that percentage really changed, or is it that we are much more um, visible to see it happening than the studies have shown before? I just think it's more technology that shows it, yeah. but I don't think the the standards are just as high as they always been to be one. And they get you, the weeding out process is through the FTO, so a few people get through that, and some. What does the FTO stand for? Uh, field training field officer. training officer. That is the that is critical. If we knew mm-hmm. the percentage of people who didn't make it through field training officer training, that would give us the percentage, right? Not everybody gets through. No, no, but you get weeded out in the uh, police academy. You get weeded out through the um, uh, mental mental health process. Uh, assessment and and the medical assessment, all those things weed you out. Remember and like. you have the finished product going through the academy. Those people, like for instance, in my academy class, in the third week, uh, we got issued our guns. And we were told, you won't see it for another four or five weeks. So you got to sign for it, put it back in the box, and then it goes back to the gun range. Two people decided at the break to go play with their gun in in the, the bathroom on the break. Uh, the captain, who's in charge of the, the academy, he knows that he probably it probably happens every class. He walks in to the restroom and he sees them playing quick draw with their with their oh brand new gun. They didn't come back that afternoon. Right. They were fired right away. So that's the weeding out process for part of it for um, uh, people who are childish and immature and whatnot. Yeah, I later, think they run for president after things like yeah. that. No, sorry. No. Yeah. Later on, later on on the range, some people, they're shooting the other target and they're shooting in the roof of the range or whatever. They're gone. So... Mm-hmm. So it's a weeding out process. And then when you get with your FTO, in fact, now we have you go through three FTOs. You go through one for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then you go through another one for a couple of months and the third one. And that all the FTOs have an FTO supervisor. And those people have to 
they get um, ethical training. Uh, I have a quick question while you're going through the training, because yeah. this is really, really interesting. I think helpful for people to understand exactly mm-hmm. how officers are trained. Right. Um, when you're using a firearm, you know, it's life and death. And it's from what I just looked up, it says that you get approximately 110 hours of training in self-defense, uh, in firearms, and with batons and whatnot. But mm-hmm. you, but typically, and you can speak to this because this is just something I looked up on the internet, but for the two of you, it says that on average, uh, conflict management is only dedicated eight hours of your training is dedicated to conflict management. Is that what you experience? And do you think that's enough? I don't think that's um, I haven't experienced that. I experienced so much. I got more training in my pinky toe than mm-hmm. most probably have in their whole lifetime. I think that... For conflict management? For, for conflict management? Yes, for conflict management, for firearms training. I've been trained left, right, upside down. So <laughs> I think it also depends on the department. It depends on, you know... Um, uh, there's different police officers in different branches, city police mm. officers, federal police officers, DEA, FBI, CIA, you know, and all these different departments have different types of training. Dad, what do you say? Because people like to say that police officers don't have a whole lot of training. And this is also something that, you know, is an, another thing that a bias against police officers. What do you mm-hmm. have to say about what Julia is talking about? And then we're going to go to a commercial break. Well, okay. I, as, as far as that kind of training, yes, it, that I think that needs more. Uh, you get some of that with the FTO, and you get some of that being with partnered with a more senior officer, so you learn different uh, methods. But I do remember we went through this this training about uh, how to deal with people of different ethnicities than yourself. So we have people come in because you have in-service training three or four mm-hmm. times a year. And we had in-service training and these people came in from different, there were different ethnicities and including gay, lesbian and whatnot. And, and I do remember this particular ethnic group of people, you can't talk to the female at all. Don't talk. You always talk to the man. So I'm mm, Okay. So the next time I get a call like that and I go to the house, the man says, talk to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it blows the hell out of that theory. (laughs) What? Or or, or you have to talk to the kid because the parents don't speak English. So you have to talk to the kid. And, And another one is the elder. They won't, the family won't talk to you at all. They'll talk to an elder come talk to you. So, right. so no, I can't figure all that out myself. <laughs> <laughs> I tell the police, like, come talk to my wife. I do the same thing. But so I don't know. I don't know how long it takes to learn all these kind of things. But other than through experience. And if you have a senior officer or the partner that's got four or five more years than you, right? then they have experienced it. And they show you as you're going through your job over the years. And then finally, you got 10 years on and you're telling the young, hey, kid, shut up. 
this is what you say or this is what you do. So a lot of it is that on the job training, OJT, I guess you can say. Yes. Yeah, that goes on continuously. Well, you know, you guys, first of all, Dr. Hedgley, you are amazing. We could keep you Mm -hmm. on and we want to have you back. Yes, sir. Because you have so much information that I think people like to ask a lot of questions because we don't know, we don't see this perspective. We don't, we never hear from police officers. And that's why I think it's so important for us to do that. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to head into our commercial break. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and head into our commercial break and we'll be back. Okay, America. In a world that's ever-changing and a future ever-uncertain, more than ever, we're looking for ways to better our life, better our day, and redefine what it means to feel well. We at Kavana Health, an Oklahoma-based, GMP and kosher-certified manufacturer of hemp-derived ingredients and finished products, have had a core mission. All of us and each of us must redefine what it means to live well. Whether it's our tinctures, topical, or pet products, Kavana Health remains committed to the highest standards of production and packaging with the highest quality industrial hemp and a state-of-the-art extraction lab. Come shop with us at www.kavanahealth.com or say hello on Facebook and Instagram at kavana.health. We are Kavana Health, redefining wellness. Uh, we are still with our lovely guest, Dr. Craig Hedgley, the former MPD police officer. And we have a bunch of other questions for him. So that's why we are still holding him hostage. Now, are you under arrest or not? That is the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and Sam, you have a question for our guest. I have a couple, man. I have a ton of <laughs> no, Go yeah. for it, Sam. So the question I was just asking is, for people like me that don't, I've never talked to a cop really before this and gotten this kind of information. And I feel like people are getting all their information to kind of like sculpt their opinions off just what they see on the internet. So where do you think personally they should turn to to find more info around, around that? Just kind of have a less biased point of view. Uh, well, first you can become a, you can um, go to the community services officer at any, every police to, station has one and just ask questions. They have tours of the police academy. Uh, you can have a ride-along program. Some departments have that. You can go and ask to ride along with a, with a, uh, an officer for a day. And a program which I initially didn't like, I thought it was crazy, but it, it's really good. It's the um, uh, it's the uh, Citizens Academy. Right. And you can go through that. That's a six-week program. It's, I think yeah. it's one day or two days a week for a couple hours every day. And then you go through uh, different um, different aspects of being a police officer. You go on a firing range. You go, uh, you go through scenarios. Yeah. Uh, and... You get to ride along, and and yeah. that's a great, great uh, program to get the citizens advocate for you. And then they, a lot of them become police auxiliaries after that, and they help out at at um, 
Yeah. Festivals and things like that. As well. You mean there's a way to make a difference besides uh, you don't have to tear shit up? You mean in order to actually be productive and go actually help go see? Yes. The what do you really mean, Doctor B? What What do you really mean? <laughs> you know, one of the if if we could generalize this, right, is that. When, when you're talking to people about Black Lives Matter, and we had Rocky Tyright on the show, you know, I asked him, what am I missing? And he said, you need to bring empathy. And, and that's not a linear concept. It's not a one-way highway. Mm-hmm. It's a reciprocal two-way street. It's like you have every right to hate a police officer if you actually listen to a police officer and still come to that conclusion. But before you hate, you got to learn to relate. My recommendation, and this is what I did when I was young, really, truly, go up to a police officer who's standing outside of a huge gathering. Back in the day, it was a concert, right? And I was that 1960s hippies guy who was lucky enough to be a hippie guy thinking I knew everything in the world. And just talking to them, just asking them questions. Look at the difference, Sam, in your language about police officers. You use the word cop, yeah. right? In my world, it's a, that's a disrespectful term. Really? In your world, it is a it it is the term. You don't even know you're you're not being disrespectful. I know you very well, and you're not a disrespectful young man. And if you are, you wouldn't be on this show, right? <laughs> But, but but that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. How we use language, mm-hmm. the fact that we have you never talked to a police officer until now, and your peers hate cops. Like like, tell me when a cop hurt you. Not per, not me personally, but just like I mean, I don't know. Like it's like almost like I can't really think any other way. It's fashionable. It's trendy. It's right. It's it's what's going on now. Now, now that doesn't mean that that we don't have room for concern, and we don't have room for concern for the Asian guy who's good at math, or the Jewish guy who's wealthy, or the African American guy who's whatever we think that's going on. The reality is, is that is 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 that it's the intention to find out before you form your your opinion. Yeah, I really right? can't hate till you relate. That's really cool. I really yeah. don't. Yeah, that. social media, dude. You don't hate till you relate. How mm-hmm. about don't hate relate? Don't hate relate. <laughs> yeah, but, I think. But, but I, I think what Dr. Hedgley's saying, which I think is really, really important, right, is that you don't even know these programs exist. Mm-hmm. Like. Like if you're not willing to drive, if you've ever sat in a police car in the front seat, by the way, and you, and you drive along somebody, this is a paycheck that they get and a lifestyle that they're doing. It is like a, a minister, right? No one's getting rich off of this, right? But you're out there knowing people hate you. And I think that that the whole issue of Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter is is this need for a reciprocal dialogue like we're having today. You still may get off of this and you still may not like police officers. I happen to like the two that's on the call right now. (laughs) 
And thank God they didn't bring their guns. Oh. <laughs> We're safe through Zoom. Mm-hmm. Handcuffs. Yeah, I think we also need to realize, we also have to realize that, co- that not cops, police officers. Thank you. Are, are people, I'm glad that you pointed out the, the cop versus police officer. I think that's very important as well. The language is very important. But I have talked to police officers, gone out of my way because they've helped me in a lot of situations, whether right. it's just being there to make me feel safe whether it's helping crowd control, but I've also had a cop pull me over, frisk me for no reason and grope me. So cops are people and yep. police officers have a different mindset, I think, than people who think they're cops. I think there's got to be even they're humans. People are human and you have to treat them as such. So get to know each individual police officer in your area that you interact with and then understand your community as, as a citizen getting to know your community police officers. So years ago, I was a, a, a private therapist in private. I was a private practice therapist before I started all the, the other stuff with coaching and athletes and all of that. And for years next door to me was this gentleman who was also a therapist. And one day the police came to his office, handcuffed him and took him away. And we found out that he was molesting some of his patients. Okay. So all of a sudden, everybody on the floor was tagged that we were all molesting our patients, right? The, the whole point of that is, is, is that, yes, yes, that guy deserves to be put in jail and he deserves to get stripped of his badge and right? But the other person who helped you with your car situation or whatever, that somehow we have to take it out of that because one person did this, we all do this. Or we have to say we all do this and we're going to have to live with the fact that that I'm going to get blamed for what you did, right? I mean- Hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable. I've, I've encountered- had one bad experience with cops and I've had many, many good experiences. Right. But, but, but we should not diminish the fact that you have one bad experience with this officer and it was unfortunate and traumatic for you. Right. Yeah, and right. It happens because first of all, people are human. Like we say, just because we've, and, and like Dr. Hedgley, we talk about this all the time. We, the police officers recruit from the same the same place that everybody else recruits from, which is the human population. Yes. <laughs> you said that, you know, um, you're going to get some rotten apples every now and then. People mm. slip through the system who suck. What I want to uh, really kind of point out is one thing that was talked about was how in a previous episode, when we were talking to another guest, and I believe it was Rocky. I asked him a question. I said, do you think it's possible for a police or a person to become a change agent in even in a system, even in the police department. And he said no. And the reason why he said no is because of his idea of how the police department started. And in his idea of how the police department started, it started because of racism. So what I'd like to talk about in the last few minutes of our conversation is how did the police department start? Dr. Hedgley? Well, it's... (laughs) No, it actually started in England, the way we police. Yeah, here, throw me to the walls here. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we're in a courtroom. Yeah. She's Perry Mason all of a sudden. <laughs> well, uh, well, policing, as, as we know it in our country, started in England 
in the 1800s with uh, Robert Peel, who was the Secretary of Home Guard. And he came up with eight points that uh, a police department should, should behave with, should go by. Before that, it was the Army that was the police department. Right. And that never works. He never, uh, Army never works well as a policing agent. Hmm. Never, never. And even in the Roman days, they had a, they called cohorts. Those were people that were basically a police department. And the Army was before them. So, so this idea of the police, being a police department has been around for a long time. But Peel put it into modern perspective, and he hired 10,000 people to be the London police. That, and that 10,000 turned over in 10 years. So he, he fired and hired people for 10 years, and he doubled 100% of what he originally started with to a new 100%. So, so um Anyway, it came to America, and it started in, I, I think it was Boston. That was the watchman. That was the first police department, Boston or Philadelphia, one or two. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And, and it grew from there. But the sheriff thing went out west, and, but it, all, everything, every department the way we behave is based on those eight points that Robert Peel made uh, over a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So sometimes some departments get away from it, and then they it's just organizational cycle. You have to reinvent yourself every so many years, and sometimes right. the, depending on which chief it is. Do we the, know uh, the cycles? Do we know the eight points? I do, not by heart. I think I wrote I wrote it down here somewhere. I just want to know if, if any of those points is uh, start a racist organization. Is that <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, it wasn't. None not of that. Yeah. No, sure. it's number nine. Number nine. Number yeah. eleven. It's number eleven. Or yeah, an external body to hold us accountable yes. because we didn't self-govern by the laws. Yes. And, and that is still true today. There is yes. no way we can ask people to follow a set of laws and self-govern without them stepping over the boundaries into self-interest. Mm-hmm. Yes. I found the nine points. The nine, nine, point. <laughs> nine points, okay. Nine policing principles, and here they are. To prevent crime and disorder. Yes. To recognize always that the power of the police to fulfill their functions and duties is dependent on public approval for their yep. existence. To recognize always that to secure and maintain the respect and approval of the public means also securing of the willing cooperation of the public in the task of securing observance of the laws. And I'm just going to read through briefly some of them, or all of them, but briefly. Number four, to recognize ways that the extent to which the cooperation of the public can be secured diminishes 
disproportionately the necessity of the use of physical force and compulsion for achieving police objectives. Number five, to seek and preserve public favor, not by pandering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolute impartial service to law, incomplete independence of policy and without regard to the justice or injustice of the substance of individual laws, etc. Number six, to use physical force only when the exercise of persuasion, advice, and warning is found to be insufficient to obtain public cooperation to an extent necessary to secure observance of law or to restore order, etc. Number seven, to maintain at all times a relationship with the public. Number eight, that's etc. Number eight, to recognize always the need for strict adherence to police um, executive functions, etc. Number nine, to recognize always that the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder and not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. So I'm gonna go ahead and rest my case. Those are Thank the- you. Thank you for the unbiased reading of that. <laughs> my goodness gracious. Well, it's the facts. So now people know where the, the principles of how the police department was built. And they don't Well, it's amazing that those are two hundred years old. Hey. And they're relevant today. Hey now. So Right. Now also Heath Robert Peel brought up the idea of since the British Army was red their uniforms were red. He brought up uh, the idea that the police should be different. They're, they're formed like an army, but they're not an army. So he right. changed the color for police to blue. Hence, we have blue now. Got hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's important to me to look at that. What you said is that every system has to reinvent itself every so often. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the with crisis comes change. And maybe the change is not to blame, but maybe the change is to reinvent. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're going to go ahead and say goodbye, unless we have any closing thoughts from our guests or any closing thoughts from my fellow hosts. Again, this is OK America. You guys have any closing thoughts? It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I do Thank have you. a closing thought. We say to our military as they we, we run into them on airplanes and in front of us, and we say, thank you for your service. And I would challenge everybody to go out, see somebody in blue uniform, and see what happens if you say thank you for our service. Mm-hmm. And with yeah, that- I, I do that a lot. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yeah, and thank I, you for our ser- your service. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yes, thank you for yeah. your service. Thank you for yeah. your time. Thank you for your service there, Dr. B. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting too mushy. Oh, group hug. Right. Thank you all. Thanks, doctor. We'll thank see you. you for all for inviting me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.